I experienced my first suicide in the military, and I conformed to a standard of behavior in the service that said, this individual's weak for taking his life. We need to press on. He wasn't a good airman, a good soldier, etc. I was malformed because I had this belief that as a black man, as a father, that we couldn't show our emotions. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Philip Tyler, loss survivor and mental health advocate. Philip received a text on the afternoon of November 29, 2017, that would reveal the devastating suicide of his son, Devin, and the beginning of his journey with grief and comfort. According to Philip, everyone Devin encountered commented on his infectious smile. Devin never forgot a birthday or Christmas card, and his frequent text messages continue to shape Philip to this day, including one of the last ones he received from Devin after helping someone in need, which said, I quote, We all need that one chance, that one glimpse of support. We are all family. Life is chaos. Be kind. End quote. Philip is a crime prevention and education officer at Gonzaga University and a married father of three. His extraordinary career has included time with the County Sheriff's Office, the United States Air Force, and the Spokane NAACP. He also stays busy as a certified comfort trainer, serves on the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's Washington Board of Directors, is a community rep with the Washington State Patrol Independent Investigative Team, and a member of the Mayor's Mental Health Task Force. He's also currently studying communications at Gonzaga University. So listen in for some great takeaways about Philip's journey as a lost survivor of suicide and helping Devin's legacy to live on to create more kindness in the world. Well, I have the distinct pleasure of being with Philip Tyler today, lost survivor and mental health advocate, very involved with an organization that you've heard me speak about very often, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. He's involved with their Washington chapter. And thanks for joining us today, Philip. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, good morning, Larry, and thank you immensely for allowing me to have some space and time on your show here. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about the issues that we both share and we both feel are important. Absolutely. So before we jump in and and we kind of dive a little bit deeper into who you are and what you do, can you give our listeners a bit of a background about who Philip Tyler is and your journey? Sure. Yeah. My name is Philip Tyler. I am an Air Force veteran. I spent eight years in the United States Air Force as a law enforcement specialist. I was a lieutenant with the Spokane County Sheriff's Office in the jail division. I was a training lieutenant and in charge of jail operations at our downtown facility. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a law survivor like yourself, Larry. 
I'm presently the crime prevention and education officer with Gonzaga University, Gonzags, <laughs> and I am a advocate, a staunch advocate for suicide prevention and mental health in our community. I sit on the board of AFSP Washington. I am a trainer with them, and my goal in life is to really reach out to families, particularly men and young men, to show them that emotions and showing emotions versus suppressing those emotions, developing good coping skills can help guide them to a place where they don't feel like life is not worthy of living. I appreciate that. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, number one, thank you for your service. I appreciate that. And it's very much we as a show and an organization, my firm Mitlin, we are very pro-veteran and we appreciate and really um, admire those that have served in the military. So thank you for that. And we will talk a little bit more about our connection in terms of being lost survivors. I think that's an important connection that we have. We will be airing this episode during Mental Health Awareness Month. And mental health, being lost survivors, is a topic that you and I connect on very – connect around, I should say. And I would love for you to share your story. I've shared mine plenty of times on the show. I'd love for you to share why you are so passionate about this topic and where that comes from. Yeah, sure. As I described earlier and you described in the intro, Larry, I'm a lost survivor. And we lost our son, Devin, to suicide five years ago. Why I'm so passionate about mental health and suicide prevention now is because it took me 50 years to realize that suicide and mental health was a complex issue and an issue that it wasn't just suffered by those who were weak. It wasn't suffered by those who had their lives in, in shambles and these kind of things. And it took me 50 years again to be transformed. And I use that term transform, Larry, because I believe that we as as humans are all formed creatures. We're either deformed, conformed, malformed, or transformed. And as I alluded to, I was a service member. I was conformed to the military. I, I experienced my first suicide in the military. And I conformed to a standard of behavior in the service that said, this individual's weak for taking his life. We need to press on. He wasn't a good airman, a good soldier, etc." I was malformed because I had this belief that as a black man, as a father, that we couldn't show our emotions. I passed this down to my sons. And sadly, that behavior said, led my son to taking his life in 2017. It took me then that experience to be transformed into where I am today with you today. But my experience in losing my son was one of the most devastating experiences I had in my life. You know, we had been renting my first home to my son and his three best friends, and I got a call or a text, I should say, from our longtime neighbor saying, hey, what's going on at your house, Phil? There's several police vehicles, fire vehicles, ambulances. And of course, as a father, you do just like any other father would do, right, Larry? You, you would text your son right away. And I got no response. And when you get those no responses, you do another thing. You text again. This time you use punctuation. Call me, exclamation point. And when I did not get a response at that point, I did what any parent would do. That, that feeling started to overcome my body. And I jumped in the car. We were five minutes away at our, our new home. And as soon as I rounded the corner and I saw the display of emergency first responders, I knew working in the profession myself that something was wrong. And the focus was concentrated on the garage. And I stepped out of my vehicle. And the first person that greeted me was our fire chief, who was a dear friend of mine, Brian Schaefer. And he just hugged me. And we cried. And I knew at that point 
The second person to greet me was our police captain, Tracy Meidel, and she hugged me and we cried. And I went through this experience of complete body shock at that point, Larry, where I was upset, mad, sad, guilty, angry, and I wanted to push through and get to my son. I remember them telling me, Phil, you don't want to go in there. We love you. Just want to hold on to you. And I remember, you know, thinking as a man, as a black man, I didn't want anyone to see me cry. And, and I just openly wept, Larry. And, and I think it was this cathartic moment that really transformed me into where I am today. And the remainder of the day was kind of a blur. And some of that blur is because I purposely kind of block out sections of that because of the trauma. But that post-traumatic trauma that was born into me after that event led me to where I am today in my advocacy. Well, first and foremost, I'm very sorry for obviously your loss and Devin, heartbreaking. I, I've read the story and I've heard and I, I've listened to you tell stories about his update beat attitude and how positive he was and how he looked at life. And I'm sure we'll share some of that today. I could connect with a lot of those things that you're talking about, as I've shared, when my brother-in-law died by suicide, my wife got the phone call or my father-in-law called the house. He immediately told her that she had to put me on the phone. And I was basically the first one that was kind of alerted to what had happened. And like you, I remember being in shock and I, I was tasked with telling other people in the family. And very similarly, I think that there's a similar kind of processing that we as people have to go through. And looking at what you've done and what has come out of this is very similar to what we've decided as our family. And you've kind of gone through those malform, conform, transform, those steps that you've, you've kind of looked at. We've taken a similar stance and decided rather than kind of keeping it inward and not sharing the story, we feel that by sharing, hopefully we can prevent other families from experiencing this if we can be open and honest about what's going on in our lives, et cetera that it only adds value and help. So one of the questions I had for you is following this, these events in your family, one of the things that you've done, you've taken an active role with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which, as you know, is an organization that we've been involved since my brother-in-law's passing in 2004, so a, lo a long time. What was behind your decision in working with that organization as opposed to the various others that exist out there that cater to or speak to mental health and suicide prevention? What was the draw for you and your family there? Thank you for asking that question, Larry. Before I begin, I, I really think it's important for us to pay tribute and recognize Keith in your law. So I want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Just as important as Devin is. In my loss, I know Keith is a big piece of your loss, and, and it's what has essentially drawn us together here. So I think that's important to always speak the name of the ones that we've lost. So, Absolutely, and thank you for that. Yes, sir. What drew me to AFSP was really because AFSP is that organization that really works to save lives and bring hope to people who really are affected by suicide and suicide loss. And I'm not suggesting that other entities out there aren't doing that, but they have been doing it so long and so well, backed by research backed by the education, much like the presentations that we will give out to members of our community and schools and et cetera, and advocacy like yourself and I, whether you're sitting on a board nationally or whether you're sitting on a board locally. And what drew me in was really the research element of it, because I had to go and search out data 
that I, as an adult, again, I, I talk about at 50 years old, had to be educated about. Why did my son take his life? Why would a seemingly successful young black man take his life? And I had to go do the research because I had this cognitive dissonance about men didn't take their lives, particularly black men didn't take their lives. And this narrative that we have been acculturated into, I had to get some knowledge. And I had to have that knowledge be based in research, not just conjecture, not just anecdotal information. I'm not dismissing sharing of stories, but I'm saying the research element that the organization does, AFSP, coupled with their education, coupled with their advocacy, really drove me to them. And beyond that was their International Law Survivors Day. I attended my first International Law Survivors Day sponsored by AFSP. It was probably, Larry, three weeks after uh, we lost Evan. It was tough. Very similar. So we attended the first out of the darkness community walk, probably like four or six weeks after Keith's loss. Very similarly. Wow. The connection. And it was tough, but I was surrounded by people who understood my experience. I was surrounded by people that were willing to sit and listen to our experience. I was surrounded by people that were willing to share their experience. And I believe sharing is caring. And these events and others like this that AFSP promotes is what drew me to the organization. That's amazing. And you are the president or the chair of the uh, Spokane, Washington chapter. Is that right? I am not. I'm a co-chair with with our uh, chair, Tim. But the organization, the chapter is just flourishing. And we are really making strides in our community. We got, we got a big grant recently to teach some talk saves lives in our community. And again, that's that educational portion I was talking about. One of the other things that I think we have in common is now you, like me, have also become a person that people in the community call when they're faced with a suicide loss or if they think somebody may be in crisis. One of the things I I would love to hear is, as somebody who's a loss survivor, how do you deal with being that person, right? Because you've gone through it, you know, I'm sure it brings up memories of those events that you just mentioned. How and why do you put yourself out as that person? Because I do the same thing. Absolutely. And thank you for doing that, Larry. The why is because I do not want anyone to be able to suffer in silence like so many do in our society. The why is because I know that connection is so vital in these situations, particularly someone with a lived experience of going through this that is not identical, but is similar to what those are experiencing. I do it because there is healing through the hurting. And what I mean by that, Larry, is when I put myself out there, when you put yourself out there to be involved with persons that have had a loss or are having some struggles with someone that they might think is going to experience some mental health issues. There is a piece of me that I release that burden that I was going through onto them, and they release a little bit of their burden onto me. And we're able to lighten that load, if only for a period of time for them, that it works. And I have grown immensely through doing this. And it's ironic that you say this, because this past weekend, we were doing just that my wife and I, for our dear friends, our neighbors that live right across the street from us. And I'll save part of that conversation because it's one of the the things I know your podcast always does this, Larry, is one of the grateful things that we did today that we're thankful for. And I'll share that for the ending. But it comes out of us doing this sharing and putting ourselves 
out there to serve as a shoulder, a set of ears, an arm to wrap around those in the community. So the reason why is because I don't want anyone to feel lonely or alone. We know this from personal experience that even if you're in a room with hundreds of people, you can still feel alone. Because you don't feel that they understand the uniqueness of your loss, the uniqueness of your hurt, the uniqueness of your grief when it comes to suicide loss. So when you are surrounded by people that understand that and have been through it, it really takes away that loneliness that you can feel in a room of people. And we are the persons that break through what my dear friend Jen Marr would call the awkward zone. The awkward zone is that place where people want to say something to help Larry, to want to say something to help Phil feel better but they don't know what to say, or they're afraid of saying something that might be misconstrued. But in the absence of not doing something, we're still hurting. We're still grieving where anything would be better than nothing. That's why I put myself in that position. That's what the whole seize the awkward campaign is all Absolutely. about, right? Seize the Absolutely. awkward is really speaks to that specific situation where you feel like you should, or feel like something could or would be said. And We have a tendency not to, and really what that campaign is all about is go ahead and do it because you may say something in that moment, in that situation that saves a life and helps somebody, and it may be the spark that they need to get back on the right track, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. In your view, how do you think we change the conversation around men, specifically, in particular, black men and mental health, right? I think men are a challenge to begin with, like you said, and then black men in particular is probably even a little bit higher level challenge. So how do we start changing that conversation and getting people to talk about that? First of all, I will say that I believe we can change this. Frederick Douglass once said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair a broken man. And I say this not from a gender standpoint, man is in mankind, but for our conversation for men. Frederick Douglass being a black orator of the past was speaking specifically about black men in this case. And I believe that we have been the creators of culture throughout our lifetimes. And if we can create culture, we can also recreate that culture. The culture that we have been acculturated into as black men, has been this trope of having to be strong, never let them see you cry, suppress your emotions. And I was taught that by my father. My father was taught that by his father. I taught my sons that behavior. And what I realized is that's nonsense. And we need to take back and resignify what it is to be strong or masculine, particularly in an era of what we're talking about, a lot of toxic masculinity. And I don't prefer to use that term, Larry. I prefer to use misconstrued masculinity because I don't think anyone goes out there specifically to say, when you're going to be a man, you have to be mean and harsh and insensitive. It is what we have been taught, the misconstrued behavior of what it is to be a man. And if we have been taught that, we can unlearn that. But it starts by being vulnerable. It starts by showing that you're able to have deeper relations and connections with other men. You start by showing that it's okay to show emotions. All men are human. Black men are human. All human have emotions. So black men should have emotions too. And we need to be showing this. And there's many people out there that are doing this, uh, including myself, my dear friend, BJ Williams, in a campaign called Can I Be Vulnerable, is taking video vignettes of men, professional athletes, former athletes, talking about their mental history, history, talking about their emotions. And when you share that, when you see that, 
particularly as a young black man, you know that I don't have to be this hard, cold, calculating, strong black man. I'm even working a campaign that's called the Week Campaign, W-E-A-K, where we're resignifying this word week, Larry, not as an adjective, but as an acronym, willing to express adult kindness, W-E-A-K. And if we can then resignify that word, when someone comes to Larry or Phil says, hey, man, you're being weak, brother. I say, thank you. I am willing to express adult <laughs> kindness. And more of us should be doing that. When we have conversations like this, that you will share out across your national platform when you're talking to a black man, talking about changing the culture, it works. When we have conversations like AFSP did for us with Dr. Jill and David Threed and Douglas Middleton, where three black men are just talking, chopping it up about their mental health, about their experiences, and we're okay with it. We're vulnerable with it. That's how we do it. But it has to start at the early level. Again, because Repairing broken men, I'm not suggesting that men are broken. We're all messy. But it's easier to build these strong, resilient young men that are coming up and then modeling that behavior. So I really think it's possible. I think it takes men that are willing to step up, to show their emotions, to show that showing emotions isn't bad, to show that we have been taught this misconstrued masculinity, and we can change that dynamic. Are you familiar with Lorenzo Lewis? Absolutely. The Confess Project? Uh, Project? Absolutely. And that brother is doing exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah, he's a great example yeah. of how he looked at this problem and attacked it from an angle that makes a lot of sense. Men going to their barbers Absolutely. and being willing to talk about things that maybe they wouldn't be willing to talk about otherwise, and then utilizing a lot of resources to train those barbers. I think that that's, he's a great guy. I, I love what he's doing, and I think that plays into exactly what we're talking about here. He's speaking the truth. Yeah, I had a barber called Larry when I was growing up real quick, and Larry was our local counselor before we knew what counseling was. <laughs> you sit in the chair, yeah. you talk about life, what's going on, how are you doing, give you life lessons, even financial lessons. Larry would give us. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. You seem to think that, and I agree, that we can teach young men, socialize young men to start embracing or embracing their emotions. And it sounds to me, and, and I tend to agree, that the earlier we do that, the better off we are because then those children turn into adults that feel comfortable doing that. Are there certain things for parents listening today, right? Are there things that we should be working with in your view with our kids to help working them towards that path to feel comfortable and embrace their emotions? What could we be doing? That's a good question and a broad question. But I think really as parents, first of all, we start by modeling, right? A lot of the life lessons that we learn aren't taught verbally in K through 12 or higher education. They're taught by what we see, as you described as socialized. They're taught by what we see in the media, what we hear in the media, what we do in our social media spaces. So we really want to teach our young men great confrontation skills. Confrontation not being a bad word. Conflict is the word we want to avoid, right? And sometimes this conflict is at the end of a gun. We want to avoid those things. We don't want to see shootouts on the corner and these kind of things. So we want to teach them great confrontation skills and have them understand that having a disagreement with someone shouldn't lead to conflict. So if we can teach them better coping skills, better confrontation skills early on and show that ourselves, then that helps. The other thing is, is there's a great campaign out of Oakland from an educator and, and a black male. His name is Ashante Branch. 
And it's called the Million Mask Movement. And for many black men who are listening to this conversation or will listen to this conversation, they'll understand the mask because every day we have been taught to put the mask on when we leave the house. What the mask does for black men is it puts this smiling outward appearance of positivity to the world because two things, we have been taught we can't let them see us showing emotion and B, if we don't have a smile, we're somehow intimidating to the others. But behind that mask is all of those emotions that we pent up and we suppress. So my mask, for an example, Larry would have imposter syndrome syndrome hitting behind it, John Henryism and hurt. But I can't heal what I don't reveal. So what we want to tell our young men in growing up is if you're having something that's hurting, you have to reveal that in order for us to help you heal that. And this million mask movement helps us to take that mask off ultimately and reveal what is behind that smiling face and help us heal those issues. So it's those things. It's sharing the stories. It's showing that you can have a close relationship with another man, another young boy. There was a great New York Times article recently that talked about that. That's lacking in society. That's driving men to these negative and bad places. So that's where we start. We start by having these great conversations and we start by saying, really work on your self. And because we know our Gen Z is connected to media, work on your social media. Don't be a bad person on social media. Don't be a bully, right? Cyberbullying is huge, right? Even on our college campuses. Yeah, let's talk about that for a moment, because with technology comes our ability for you and I to connect today and have this conversation and record it. But it, like you were alluding to, or you said straight up, it allows others to hide behind keyboards and bully others. And I think cyberbullying is a real problem, and it's growing, and it impacts the lives of so many because these people don't have to confront or see the person that they're doing this to. They just type away. What do you think we can do to combat this growing issue? Are, are there things that we can utilize to attack this to reduce cyberbullying? I really do. I think we have to educate ourselves about what cyberbullying is, and you described it very well, Larry. You know, Because unlike any other forms of bullying like we had when we were going to school and those kind of things, Victims seldom are able to escape their attackers, their cyber attackers, because they follow their social media and they're able to post stuff publicly. And in this online space, you can be as pervasive and hurtful as you want to be, right? And we have to understand the broad spectrum of what cyberbullying is to start, right? Particularly as adults in this space. So then we educate our youth, right? It's making threats. It's spreading lies, gossip, or rumor. It is sharing those embarrassing photos or threatening to share those, posting insults, these hateful messages and comments on your post. All of those things amount to cyberbullying. And I think we have to learn the signs when someone is being cyberbullied. It's different than coming home with a black eye, like when we were coming up, right? Or a scuffed knee or a torn shirt. The signs, is there a change in this young person's personality? Are they deleting accounts? Are they not being on social media as much as they normally would be? Those are signs you want to look for. And you want to help them and encourage them to build those relationships, as I spoke about before, Larry, where disagreement is okay, where you're not throwing out these hateful barbs and these kind of things. And, and again, as I tell our college students on our campus, be smart about your online activity. Be smart about your online activity. Be smart about your privacy controls, who you are allowing to be friends and connect with. I tell people all the time, yes, you might have an Instagram profile and you have 600 friends. How many of those 600 friends do you really know? The answer is obviously very little of those. So be careful because some people are out there to do bad things to your account. The other thing is 
don't respond to a bully. You know, when we were coming up, if I said something back, the bully just kept coming at me. If I ignored the bully, now we have mute, block, delete. We can do those things. Don't give, bullies thrive off, absolutely use it because bullies thrive off that fear and those negative responses back to their behavior. Before those things, be specific. Tell them, hey, please don't contact me in this way. Please don't use that term. And if they don't respond to that, now it's time to use your skill sets to block, mute, remove. So that's where we start really with this, with the cyberbullying. And it is possible to end it because when bullies are left to their own devices or alone, they have to start doing some self-reflection and introspection. Why aren't people engaging with me? Why are they deleting me? Well, Phil, because you're a bully. I think you hit the nail on the head and those are some great points. What do you think to this point, what's been the most valuable lesson your grief journey has taught you as a person? Connection matters. Connection matters. And don't negate the power of casual check-ins. So let me talk about connection first. Connection in my grief journey is the thing that has helped me along my grief journey path. And here's what I mean by connection. We know when we have a loss. When I lost Evan, when you lost Keith, people reached out immediately in that first week. And then they reached out in the first month. And then we had the memorial and they reached out during that time. But as time went on, the connections faded. Not all of them, but those true connections that remained, those true connections that were there for us to lend us an ear, to hug us, to casually check in on us, really made a difference. And when I say casually check in, don't underestimate the power of this. If I just send a quick note or a phone call to Larry and say, hey, Larry, the other day I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and it just reminded me of you and the great work that you have been doing along this grief recovery path. And I just wanted to say, brother, I truly appreciate that. And I truly appreciate you. That power that you give to someone so they can feel heard, seen, acknowledged, cared for, and loved is wonderful. So connection and the power of casual check-ins has been the most valuable thing on my grief journey. And I have done that, as you described, Larry, for other families. Just last year, probably six families reached out to me during the calendar year. And I offered that connection, that casual check-in from time to time. And it really makes a difference because we know that grief journey looks sort of like this, up and down, all around. It's not this linear path. There might be a day where we're feeling that down and Larry calls or texts to check in and say, I surely appreciate you. And that might be what we need in that moment to bring us from that down point to that upward point. That's been the most valuable for me. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And that is important to understand. I, I know when I see people who have a loss, especially like online, where people have a tendency now to announce it on social media, I very rarely will comment on those things or message through social media. I feel like I, that's a time that I need to pick up the phone and actually talk to somebody. It doesn't have to be suicide loss. It could be any type of loss. I feel like that connection of making that phone call, taking the old school method, 
actually shows because like the bully writing things online, it, it's easy, right? It's easy to just write it online. And it's meaningful to a point, but I think it just adds that much more meaning if you actually dial the phone. And even if I don't get the person, I leave them a voicemail and say, hey, I didn't want to leave this online, but I, I wanted to know that I'm thinking about you and reach out. So I think that connection is very important. So before we get into our last question that we ask all of our guests, what advice as somebody who's gone through this do you have for somebody who's struggling or perhaps knows someone who is? I think you touched on a couple of things, but maybe we could just surmise a couple of two or three different things that we could be thinking about if we either know somebody or know somebody who we can advise that knows somebody who's struggling. How do we help them? That is very important given the struggles that we're going through as a nation and as a people today. It's important to be educated about the risk factors and those warning signs, first and foremost. And the organization, AFSP, does a really good job of helping you to identify those risk factors and warning signs. And when you know those risk factors and warning signs, then you can then start guiding them toward the assistance that they need. If you know someone is struggling with something, ask them how they're feeling. Ask them how you can help them. If you're more concerned and they're giving you the signs that they might have self-harm in mind or they might take their own lives, ask them directly. The myth that if you ask someone directly if they intend to kill themselves is going to push them toward that behavior is simply a myth. Factually based, it is people wanting to express the pain that they are feeling and to be heard and acknowledged in that time. So it's really important for if you think someone is struggling to ask those questions. If you yourself are struggling, reach out to someone that you have a good connection with, as you describe, a relational connection. And because they can help guide you to a resource, it might be 988. 988 is beautiful in the sense that it is not simply a call for crisis. It's an educational tool, too, where they can help guide you and provide information to you. And you can do that jointly. Hey, Larry, you seem to be struggling. Can I call with you? to a resource that I know that can be beneficial to you. You don't have to do it by yourself, my friend. I'll be there for you as much or as as little as you need, but I want to make sure you get the assistance that you need in this case. So those are powerful tools to be using. If you have the time, spend the time with someone. And you alluded to that, Larry, not from a standpoint of just a thumbs up or a heart emoji, but maybe spending that time, if you can be there in that personal time with them, because you do a lot of things, you put distance between them and their emotional reaction. You might put distance between them and lethal means. You might be able to do a warm handoff for them to a resource that they might not otherwise be aware of. Those briefly are some things we can and should be doing for those loved ones and ones we care about in our lives. Great points. And I think those are very helpful takeaways for our listeners. And I appreciate that. I know because you mentioned it earlier that you're ready for our last question, which we ask all of our guests the same last question, which is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? So I'm asking you, Phil, today, Philip, today. Yeah. So this morning, Larry, I reached out and sent that casual check-in message to my neighbor whose family had suffered a traumatic incident over the course of the weekend with one of their sons. And he had stopped by this past weekend as I was out shoveling snow and, and came over to thank me for helping guide them along a path that got their son the needed assistance that he needed. But what it did for me, again, as I talked about earlier, helped take that burden off me. Because every time I assist or guide someone, to your point, Larry, it opens up that 
of pain and trauma that we've experienced as a family. But he saw me. He talked about those issues with me. He was willing to be vulnerable with me and I with him too. So doing that casual check-in, there's a passage that says, a grateful heart prevents or protects you from negative thinking. And just showing my gratefulness for him for stopping by and saying thank you, even though we didn't need that, because I would have did it because I love him and his wife as neighbors and friends. But showing that gratefulness to him will help him. And it sets me up for a more positive day. It was prior to our conversation today. So I came in this full of heart, talking with you, expressing our connection, filled my heart again. So this is also a piece of what I've done in a day that has helped me to be on a positive track. So I appreciate that. And I thank you for that. Yeah, I could see how you could get a lot of joy from that. I wish nobody had to call me and talk to me about these things because they weren't happening. But if they are and we can help, it definitely brings us a lot of joy in being able to help and assist other people and families to hopefully not experience the same exact things that we've experienced. So I thank you for coming on here, Philip, and sharing your story, sharing Devin's story and him as a person as well with us today. If people want to, and we'll have all your information in the show notes, but if people want to learn more about you, connect with you, what's the easiest and the best place for them to do that? My profiles on both Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter are open and public. You can find me at Philip Tyler on LinkedIn and on Facebook and at P. Tyler LT on, on Twitter. I would say that those are the best methodologies that you can connect with me and send me a DM. I'll share my personal number with you. If we can connect on a deeper relational basis, I would love that. I think that we're in a space, as you said, Larry, that we need to be able to do that. And I have to say this before we go. My wife asked me about this taping today, and she said, well, I know you follow the gentleman on LinkedIn, but isn't he about money and financial mindset? And, and I said this to her. I said, health is priceless, but so is a healthy mind. And what Larry is doing is sharing information that you cannot put a price tag on. And if it's able to connect with even one person out there, then he's paid his dividend in working to change the mindset of people out there. So I had to say that I think that's important. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, I appreciate that. And one thing I talk about very often on the show with families that we serve is we talk about the three legs of the stool, which are financial health, physical health, and mental health. And if you think about it, if you're suffering in any one of those areas, it affects the other. They're directly tied. So our mental health is directly tied to our financial health, which is directly tied to our physical health. So even with us not speaking necessarily, and uh, I think you did a great job of conveying that to your wife, and, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate you, again, sharing the story, coming on the show, and I look forward to continuing the conversation and make it a great day. Indeed, my friend, you as well. Thank you. I want to thank Philip Tyler for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Philip and I have much in common, and we both want to help make the world a better place and be more comfortable in talking about mental health. Devin's story did not end in November 2017, but will live on helping countless others that may be struggling because of Philip and his willingness to share his story. Philip Tyler and all that he is up to can be found across most social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him 
can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.